Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. Father in heaven, thanks for the chance to be here with these people. Um, Just as we're uh, dedicating a child to you, I just want to thank you for your dedication to us. Um, Thank you for the fact that, first of all, you created us. Second of all, you chose to reveal reveal to us yourself and your word. How would we have gone about figuring out who you are, what you care about, what's important to you, what your characteristics are, how we could please you if you hadn't revealed yourself to us in your word? And then you reveal the path of salvation. You revealed to us what to do about our problems and our sins, and you revealed to us how we could be forgiven and reconciled to you, and we're grateful. And so lead us now as we consider uh, your word, your story, and ourselves. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, when, I was, when I was headed off into one of my first ministry jobs, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the Salvation Army. I worked at the Salvation Army for a while. And this was like my ultimate job because I wanted to, I wanted to do inner city work, um, but I also wanted to work with, with students And so I got a job at the Salvation Army basketball gym, basically, where, like, my job was just to, like, open the doors to a basketball gym with a really sweet game room and, like, play with kids every day after school in this amazing facility. And then uh, I got to do church with them on Sundays as well. It was, like, everything um, I, I had ever wanted to be offered to me ended up being offered to me when I was a pretty young guy. And, um, and I, called up my, uh, I called up my best friend, Sam, and I was debating if I should take the job. I said, Sam, so there's this youth pastor, community center job that I could take, and I'm like, can I do this? Should I do this? And he said to me over the phone, he said, dude, if anyone can do it, you can do it. He said, you're like the success story out of our whole friend group, man. He said, you're, you, didn't, you didn't like do any drugs. You, you still haven't even had a beer. Like you didn't have sex or kiss anybody. And I was like, thanks for bringing that up. But he's like, you didn't do any, anything wrong. Like you are like, you, you, you're proof that like, God can save somebody from all the pitfalls, and these kids need to see that. And that felt so good to hear. I was like, yeah. 
And so I took the job. And not even a year later, I was packing up my stuff because that job was awful and stressful. And I had my first, and I didn't even know what it was, but I had a panic attack um, where I woke up in absolute frozen pain. And I was like, what? What just happened? Clearly, I was not the great hope for these kids. And not only that, not only did I lose that job, but I entered into years of serious pain. It started with that friend who said that awesome thing to me, dying in a car accident two days before his wedding with his fiance. My marriage fell apart. There was the the recession. I'd bought a house. I couldn't pay the bills. I lost my house. And one of the craziest things in that whole period of time, and I didn't even notice it as I moved through it, is I don't know if I ever cried. I yelled. I had a panic attack. I worked. I told a lot of people about it, but I didn't, and I could not cry. At my, own, my best friend's funeral, I did not cry. So you can imagine, if I didn't cry when somebody else, um, or when I was experiencing that kind of pain, I couldn't cry over somebody else's pain or loss. It's like, if you imagine like a switch on the wall, and when you feel emotions, like that switch flips and the light comes on, you actually feel everything. For me, it would feel like there'd be an event in which I knew that switch just got flipped, and it flipped, but nothing happened. I was just empty. I couldn't feel other people's sorrow. I couldn't feel my own. And so when you're going into ministry or counseling or leadership, you know, that, this isn't a good sign at all. And what you do when you can't feel somebody's pain and you can't relate is you start to hurt people and you start to sin against people and something needs to change. Now, see, the trouble I think we run into when we read a scripture, like the key one for today, because we read you a whole portion, and we're going through the whole book of 1 John, and Ray unpacked some of this last week. We're going to unpack more next week. But I want to dial in just on this one verse that says, we love because he first loved us. I think the trouble we get into is we, we graze over the surface of a statement like that, and we think we understand it when we don't. When my friend Sam looked at my life, I didn't ask him, am I a loving enough person to be in this ministry role? I, didn't, I just asked him, can I do it? But I think if I'd said, do I love people? He would have looked at me and said, yes. He saw I wasn't committing any of the cardinal sins, right? 
I hadn't been drunk or whatever. Like, that stuff wasn't there. And so he was like, you're good. You are okay. You are, you're, you're the hope these kids have. But this lack of empathy that I was dealing with, it was a major issue, and he didn't see it. And it is one I've been battling with for over a decade now, since I've recognized it. Love, the lack of love, those weren't just affecting me on the surface. They were going way, way down. So I've spent a lot of time in counseling. There's this uh, iceberg photo, kind of like the one I'm going to have him put up on the screen. It was in my pastor's office, and he was kind of the lead counseling pastor. And he would always point at it, and I'd come in with some kind of issue. You know, I was going like, hey, I, uh, so, so here's what's going on. I'm feeling this way. And, and almost every time, like at the beginning, he would go, okay, Andy, you see the iceberg? <laughs> We're up here. But, but you're not even talking about anything that's down here. And, you know, the thing with the iceberg is what manifests itself, what you see, you know, when you're on a ship in the ocean is a little, little you know, little, little thing. It's like, oh, what a cute little ice cube. But underneath, it's massive. Absolutely Massive. And most of our struggle with love is underneath the waterline. It was, it was true with me. It's been true of everybody that I've gotten to know and walked with. So we want to apply a scripture like we love because he first loved us. And we want to look up top and go, oh, you're not killing people. You're not doing like, you know, this crazy stuff. So you you're fine. You're good. You're fine. We're not fine. The second thing is, I think what we want to do, and I think it's just because it's easier, is we, we want to deal with this in an unrelational way. I think what I wanted at that time, like when I started to go through all that trouble and I started to have to go into the counselor's office, is I wanted somebody to give me, like, like, give me a name for this so I can figure out the strategy for this so I can be done with this. Name, strategy, done. That's what I wanted. And what I had to do was I started having to swim down and look at that mass underneath the waterline, and I started to have to do relationally difficult stuff or actually would like open up my life to a person and let them respond to me and feel it. People I didn't want to do that with. With God, I think we often want to work things out kind of like a, like a bargain or like a transaction, like I talked about a little bit in Confession. I don't know if any of you have seen the show The Good Place. I, I've watched a little bit. I need, I've got a ways to go. Sorry, I'm probably going to miss major. I won't even talk about it that much. But, you know, the, this show starts off with what I think the, the makers of the show knew were the going assumptions. Like, how do I get to the good place, which is like a heaven? 
I do good things. I, I'm a generally good, I'm a generally good person. And of course, if that's the deal, then the good place belongs to you. You worked for it. You deserve it. You found it. You got it right. You should be there. If you aren't there, it's not fair. But that's not relational when it comes to God. To apply a scripture like this, we love because he, which is God or Jesus Christ, loved us. This scripture is saying that our path to being a loving person is by experiencing love personally with God. That's how we become different. That's how we change. Another thing, another way I think we do this unrelationally, my buddy Pike put me onto this little label for it. We did a podcast together, and he, he was talking about all the people he knows who are really into spirituality and astrology. He said, those are, those are solo missions. Thought, yeah, that's right. Like, those endeavors are I get to become connected to something that I've defined and created. Even when you go, even when you join a group and you're seeking like a spirituality that's undefined, like it's like group support for finding your higher power. And if you find your higher power, It's not you loved because God first loved you. It's you love because you found the love you created for yourself. So, okay, what am I getting at here? I'm suggesting this idea. I'm suggesting that we love because he first loved us is profoundly a deep idea. And it's a very relational truth. And it makes us face our sins because it's personal interaction with the God who tells us what is true and good and right. And it makes us face our deepest beliefs because it makes us encounter the God who tells us who we are. This whole book of 1 John, some of us have kind of journeyed through it, and it's easy to lose the forest for the trees, and some of us are just here to see a baby get dedicated, so you're like, I don't know what you've been talking about. This whole book of 1 John is about a couple of things, true beliefs and true love. It's saying there are true beliefs that we need to hold on to. They're really important. And then those lead to true, real, genuine love. And I think this little scripture, we love because he first loved us, is the ticket, is the key. As I said, if it's because he first loved us and we have to actually like engage and feel the love of God, kind of where that begins 
is you have to be confronted by who God is, by his character. And you're going to see what we call sin in that. Because when you get close enough for God to love you, he exposes you for who you really are. We were just, uh, we just came off the men's retreat and the women last week did the women's retreat. And as you start to like get back into your story, which is what we were doing, I think one of the things you start to get confronted with is like, who am I really? And you start looking at the ways you were shaped. You start looking at your, your relationships, your parents, you know, the, the people on the schoolyard, the friends, the, like the, the things that happened to you and their diagnosis of who you are and what is good about you and what's broken about you and how you feel about that. And you start to you start to deal with it and unpack it. And then another thing you see is your, your flaws and your failures and your brokenness. And that can be a scary thing to do because if you believe in a God who's holy and good and powerful and justifiably judgmental, it can be really scary to like open up that book and Look at that and admit that that's really true. But here's the thing. Jesus entered into and remains in people's stories. That's the only place you can get to know Jesus. I want to just pull a little uh, example from the Bible and suggest it's not so different from us. If you're... If you look in um, the Gospel of Mark, you see a couple of these disciples. Um, We think Mark was probably kind of Peter's angle on things. And so you get a little extra info on James and John, who were the other close ones in a way at first. And Peter would have been around for them. And Mark 1, you have this, uh, there's a family business. Um, And I say it's a family business. We tend to say like, oh, James and John were fishermen. But they were out on the boat with their father, and when they left their father, the business didn't close down because all the hired hands were still there, it said. So this is, this is a family fishing business that they were a part of. They, they had a pretty decent gig. Um, and Jesus comes, and he calls them to follow after him, and they make a pretty big move. They, they if you think about it, left like the number number two and three positions at dad's corporation. This is coming down to them. They get major profits from this. They kind of have a, a good position with old Zebedee, their dad. And then Mark 10 comes along, and we see the same two guys, James and John, they come up to Jesus, and they've got a thought. And they're starting to think Jesus is pretty wise, pretty powerful, and he's really going somewhere. And they're thinking, he's gonna, people are following him. I think he's going to change the world. So they go up to him and they say, hey, we got, a, we got an idea. How about this? How about when you, you know, slaughter everybody, which is what they were thinking, When you slaughter everybody, 
and we, we get everybody behind us and we start this big revolt, how about me and my brother sit at your right hand and your left? Now, can you see where that might come from in their story? Like, they were kind of in this position with dad. Like, they had something going. They'd kind of built something. They'd, they'd learned. They, they weren't begging on the streets. They were, they were going to inherit a business. And so it's not so unnatural. I mean, when I, when I read it at first, I used to think, these guys are just jerks. Like, these are the dudes who are just like, like in the friend group who are always just like, hey, me first, you know, I'm in the front of the line, me, right? Brian Regan style. And some of you know what I'm talking about. But I don't know if that's so much it. I think it was so built into them, like into, the, into who they were. Like they were thinking like, we're going to inherit this thing. We're next. Like we, we actually have some skills here. We could do this. Like they're just living out of like, hey, here's who, here's who we are. But the other disciples weren't such big fans of it. They sinned against their brothers by wanting to be elevated. And Jesus looked at them and said, hey, um, you know who's going to be really great in my kingdom is the one who, who serves. And, and they went, oh. And then... You know, they go through all the, Jesus gets betrayed, actually, and he gets arrested, actually, and he gets crucified, actually, and John, one of those brothers, is standing at a Roman cross with his naked friend hanging bloody on the cross, and Jesus looks down at him and says, hey, will you do me, will you do me a favor? Please take care of my mom for the rest of her life. And John did. You see, Jesus didn't just come into the world and go like, hey, label, I labeled it. You're proud. Stop being proud. Get your act together and and we'll do this. Jesus knew who they were, he had compassion. He taught them another way. He walked with them one step at a time. And then he handed them things that felt foreign to them that they did not want to do. And he personally put that responsibility in their laps and said, live this out and you'll see. This is is what my kingdom is like. It might be taking care of an old woman for the rest of her life. But Jesus knew who they were. And if God is personal and Jesus' spirit is within his people, which he says it is, then we should expect that same level of involvement from Jesus. So we need to know our stories. We need to seek the ways Jesus is engaging in our stories. That's what we've been pushing for with these retreats the last couple of weeks. We'll do, we'll do more of these. But we want to see Jesus is involved. Sometimes he's bringing healing to just hurts. Sometimes, as the scriptures say, he's disciplining, disciplining us because he loves us. 
and he doesn't want us to go down those rabbit trails we would go down. And then Jesus, the scriptures say, his whole mission is to reconcile us with God the Father, our creator, our ultimate aim in life, the creator, the sustainer of all things, that he actually reconciles us and brings us to him. And you know what that means? That means that we are being offered access to what the people in our lives could not provide for us. I'll tell you why I couldn't feel anything. My dad was emotionally abused. It was bad. And he didn't know how to access his emotions. He shut them down when he was a little kid, back when he was told that he was stupid and to shut up. And then my mom, she didn't really have anybody to talk to, except for her son. And I began to resent that very much. Felt like too much of a burden to bear. So at some point, I told myself, I'm not going to do that to anybody else, and I'm not going to let anybody do that to me anymore. And I shut off the switch. And Satan was right there with me. And I, didn't, and I couldn't turn it back on. Now, God invited me into that story over a decade ago. And just last weekend, I was watching the Disney movie, The Rookie. This is not that good of a film. It's okay. It's okay. And I'm watching this movie, and I played baseball as a kid. This was a thing, and like baseball didn't work out for me. My rotator cuff messed up, and I was going to pitch, and I was going to go to the major leagues, and this is what I was banking on. And uh, then I got through middle school, and I had one bad coach, and my arm was starting to give me trouble. I didn't even play in high school. It died real early for me. And I'm watching The Rookie, and this guy who threw his arm out when he was young gets his pitching arm back and gets to pitch in the major leagues when he's like in his, what, 40s? And I started crying on the couch when he ran out onto the field. Now, that may not sound like, that's just like some people just do that. I don't do that, okay? And you know what that means? That means 10 years of inviting Jesus into my story has changed something. The other day, I was listening to uh, another pastor talk about his kids who are dying. They're both going to die. They have a rare disease. And I started to feel that inner feeling where I can't, when I can't feel somebody else's pain, which is a thing. And I employed this little, little tool in my toolbox, which is just that I try to imagine something that I can relate to it might be like that. And so I imagine my daughter and what it would be like to know that every day she was dying more and more and more 
And I began to feel something. So after 10 years of walking with Jesus in this, something is beginning to change. I'll tell you how it's happened. First of all, it's been acknowledging the things that have caused me pain. I'm kind of offering some of that to you. And seeing it and feeling it with God and with other people, that's been really hard to do, but really, really important. And then I had Mike sing that that U2 song because that scripture, Psalm 40, that U2 uses in the song, um, I'd heard that song, I'd read that verse, you know, that scripture, but when I went through some of my darkest times, that one came alive for me. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined toward me, and he heard my cry. He raised me up out of the pit and out of the miry clay. And then the way you too says it is, I will sing, sing a new song. And David, the psalmist says, many will see and many will hear. And what I discovered in that psalm is that David, who had sinned against others, and he had a broken story and he did some good things and he had some, he'd made some huge, huge mistakes, that he recognized that in time, had, and he had to wait patiently, that God lifted him up out of this like mucky pit of, I mean, like think of like wet caliche clay, like thick, pasty, nasty stuff. And he pulled him out of that pit and he began to sing a song of praise, he says in the psalm, to his God. And then he gave him a ministry to other people where many saw Not David's great life, but God's power to save somebody. And he gave him a ministry that he was able to share what God had done, not what he had done. I'm not giving you a complex idea here. Look at your pain, put it before the Lord. Put it before other people. Let them see it and speak to it and weep with you. Look to God's word where he's revealed his character to you. And what you'll see is that he loves to show mercy. And he loves to be the savior and to redeem his people. And then wait And I would just encourage you, I didn't sign up for the 10-year journey when I went into my first counseling session. I didn't walk in and go, hey, I got about 10 years in me. Let's do this. (laughs) I kind of wanted something that's going to fix me like in a month or two. It's taken a long time. But I'll tell you what, when I was sitting on my couch last week and felt emotion and it felt good, and write. I don't regret a day of it. And I would just encourage you, go there with God. 
we love because he first loved us. When you experience that kind of relational connection to God, that kind of love where you put it before him and you start to see him chipping away at that under like mass that's in your heart that's broken and painful and messed up, and you start to see that he actually has power to do something about it and that he's committed to you and he's not going anywhere, even if it's 10 years, you will start to feel the love that your mom, your dad, your friends, your family, your church failed to show you. And that is what will turn you into somebody who can love somebody else. Here at the table, we see a forgiveness that costs deeply. When Jesus was sitting with those disciples, I mean, think about James and John, you know, the guys who said, can we sit on your left and your right? He said, basically, no. (laughs) But you can wash people's feet. That'd be great. And he sat with them and I wonder how ashamed they felt of themselves when all their friends grumbled at them. And he sat with those kind of guys. He sat with Judas Iscariot. He sat with Peter, who was going to deny him three times. And he took bread and he said, this is my body, broken for you. And they didn't know what he was talking about until he got arrested and tried and crucified, and died. And then they said, that was horrific. What does it mean that that had to happen for me? And what it means is that our sin runs deep, as the song says. It runs deep. It costs a lot. But he gave everything. So if you're one of those people who, who thinks, like, my sin is too dark, it's too raw, nobody can handle it, God can't handle it, this is proof that he can. He gave his entire life, he suffered something he never should have had to suffer. That cost was because he was inviting you in, he was giving everything. If you're one of those people that thinks, I think I'm pretty easy to forgive, this is proof that you're wrong. It required his death. You might need to look below the waterline. There might be a lot that you don't see. He took the, the wine, blessed it. He said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of many. Remember me every time that you drink this. This is this incredible moment where, again, they don't know what he's talking about until they see him on a cross and they see blood all over the ground. And they realize, as they reflect back on that one day, he bled out, he died, so that I could be washed, so that I could be made clean. And why did he do that? Because in the Old Testament, it took a sacrificial animal to bring somebody to God. And before you could go in before God, you had to be washed clean, you had to take a bath. Only the high priest could go. 
And here Jesus was saying, I'm doing all the hard work. I'm that sacrifice. I'm the one that washes you so that you can come and look face to face at the God who can fulfill all the desires of your heart. So the invitation this evening is to come up here and to be exposed in your heart. This could be your first time doing that, and that's okay if you believe it. Or you could be doing it for the millionth time, and that's okay because you need it new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. So the invitation is to come and receive him by faith. We're going to worship in a couple ways. We're going to sing a couple more songs. We have giving in the back. It's kind of a, a way that those of us who walk with Jesus say that everything belongs to you, God. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Like I said, it's for those who believe this, even just a little bit. So the invitation is to come and to drink deeply and to see the depth of what Christ has done for you.